Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week we're joined by Sarah M. Hello. I like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? As a kid, really. Some friends got me into it, and I played a little bit, but not a ton. And then I got a lot more back into it when I was about 19 or 20, and then it just, it's always kind of been there. Do you remember your very first character? I don't. It was some, like, it was some boring fighter with a trench coat and too many swords. What about your <laughs> first memorable character? Hmm. It's probably... It's probably an illusionist. It was an elven illusionist that was actually two mice. Controlling a suit. Which game system did you get started in? Oh, um, it was... I think it would have been 3rd edition. I know it was a and d of some sort. I'm pretty sure it was 3rd edition, just from the time scale, but that was a very long time ago. And D&D &D all kinds of blends together after a while. Was there anything that your first Dungeon Master did that you have taken to heart over the years? Kind of. He was very by-the-book, in a way that a lot of, like, inexperienced and early DMs are. It's a very, this is how it goes, this is what happens, uh, we're going to progress, and, like, maybe there'll be some forks. A lot of the way that I DM uh, has kind of evolved, as I've witnessed, like, much more skilled people do it. Um, Luke Crane, the author of Burning Wheel, I, I've played in games he's run, um, I've watched a lot of videos of Adam Cobol, of Austin Walker, of people who I regard as really good, solid narrative GMs, and I've taken a lot of their lessons to heart. When did you decide to make the jump from player to GM? It was more or less, uh, no one else is willing to run this, I'm going to do it, so it'll happen. And what system was the first one you ran? It was actually a 3.5 game. It was just a nice, boring little dungeon crawler with a few friends from work. You know, get a job in a tavern, head down a musty old dungeon, beat up a skeleton, and take his retirement fund. How did that go for you? Oh, well, they beat up the skeleton and they stole his retirement fund. So it went pretty well. Looking back on it now, do you have any critiques for yourself or things you think you did well? It was a it was a mechanically solid, uh, I think, game, but again, narratively, it's lacking, and I think that's a big part of my maturation as like a DM and a player is a focus on narrative and story rather than just the mechanics, because mechanics are absolutely important and they should be in a lot of ways central. Mechanics should always be second to the story, not the other way around. So, moving away from the more mechanically driven Dungeons & Dragons, what narrative systems do you prefer to run nowadays? Oh, I'm really a big fan of anything that's like powered by the apocalypse. It's a really great system for that sort of loose, freeform, just kind of come-as-it-goes narrative, and it's very easy to get into, so if you're introducing a new player, it is super simple. My favorite system is Burning Wheel, which is like the opposite of rules light, you know, narrative system, but it, it's got my heart and it will always have my heart. 
Blades in the Dark is always fun, and I'm also a really big fan of collaborative storytelling games. Quiet Year, Deep Forest, Microscope, things like that. You had mentioned listening to other people GM. Is it difficult to hear somebody GM a system you're familiar with? I don't think it's easy or hard. I think that sometimes listening to someone GM a system I don't understand can be a little distracting because I'm trying to sort of figure out the system as they go along. But it's like watching someone do something you know how to do, but it's like in an enjoyable way. It's like it's like watching a Twitch stream of a game that you're proficient at, you know? It, it's weird, but, you know, humans. What are you going to do with us? Are you currently GMing any games right now? I am GMing one game uh, for my podcast, uh, The Wheel in the Way. We're right now playing Urban Shadows, but we've played a few other games, and we're going to play a few other games. What is the determining factor for the game you use at a certain point in your podcast? I think that the biggest thing is that we sort of decide on settings first. Um, Like, our first season was really bog-standard fantasy with some twists, so we did Dungeon World, with a few other games from Mechanical and Narrative Junctions. Um, For season two, I kind of wanted to do, like, a very grim and gritty, like, 20s supernatural noir, like a vampire the masquerade in the 1920s in the Deep South, with a lot of, like, overlapping themes of, like, you know, the intersectionalism between, like, sex and race and attraction and this sort of otherness of like species even because those are really cool themes to play with and so i kind of settled on urban shadows because i've never really been a big fan of white wolf systems but urban shadows look like a really good fit for that how did the podcast first get started we were actually playing the the campaign for a little bit before the podcast and a few other people like friends of the players uh, were like really interested in what was happening because they were really enthralled by like the secondhand stories so we ended up recording it and releasing it and it just kind of kept going from there so for the original game that you were playing that turned into the podcast did you start with a story in mind or did you start with players that wanted a story told i had the scaffolding like the framework of a story But as we moved along, I think that what the players wanted and how their characters interacted with the world sort of changed the story that, from what I had originally expected, to something different. Do you think your GMing has changed now that you are doing it with an audience in mind? I don't think so. I think that that in a lot of ways I've always viewed my players as an audience. Just someone who I'm there to entertain, to to keep uh, keep in the action. So the audience is a little bit bigger, and not all of them are participating, but there's always been an audience, to me at least. Do your players know that you prefer narrative over mechanics? Yeah, it's uh, it's something we've actually all talked about. All of my players, as well as myself, are writers, either professional or as an amateur. So, like, a lot of us are really very narrative-focused. Most of them aren't very experienced when it comes to playing games, so it can be very easy for them to say, to try and uh, dictate their moves via game rules, rather than trying to keep it, like, as a narrative action. But I try to keep that curtailed. Do you have a limit 
as to how far you're willing to let a player bend a system to fit a narrative? No. As long as, long as I feel like the narrative is it's true to the story and it's true to the character, I'll go out of my way to accommodate that player. I'll, I'll you know bend a system until it breaks, and if that doesn't work, we'll layer another system on top to see what we can do. Can you recall the last time you told a player no to what they were trying to do, or do you try to avoid telling them no? <clears throat> I try not to. The last thing I actually told the player no to, they're going to be playing in a future season a, a dragon cultist, and they were trying to name their character um, like Slavic root, like derivatives for the word dragon and i was like i'm not having a remus lupin on my podcast that's that's where i draw the line no draco the dragon from Dragonheart. exactly we're all very clear about our border or about our boundaries we make sure to you know communicate that stuff well um generally when i say no it's because i feel like something isn't true to their characters or doesn't really fit in the system, or the theme, or just doesn't make sense. Um, and occasionally, if it's not good radio, I'll, I'll try to condense stuff. But I really try to avoid hard nose whenever I can. Do you have any fan interaction with the wheel in the way? Yeah, like, we get the occasional fan mail, some reviews on iTunes. It's not a ton. We don't have a ton of listeners yet, but, like... All of us just go absolutely crazy whenever we get it. We all share it and like talk about it. And it's always really, really nice to have that sort of positive feedback that we're doing like a thing that people enjoy. Have you ever inserted any fan suggestions into the narrative? In a way, uh, one of my players currently is someone who was a listener and also a friend of mine. And one of our players ended up having to stop playing because of academic responsibilities that were taking precedence over that we replaced them with him and so uh no real fan suggestions but we did insert a fan it's a bit of a repeat of an earlier question but when you are looking at a new system to run are you thinking of the story first or the mechanics that will help you tell the story both i think they're both uh that and some systems are really not suited for the for a sort of podcast format. They're too they're too gritty or too visually centered, and so that is something I do want to keep in mind because the story and the and the mechanics are all very important. But I still want this to be enjoyable for the listeners. So, but so I'm always looking at you know I don't want this to be something that's too complex for my players. You know, they're not, like, super, like, experienced, been playing since they were 12 years old RPG players, necessarily. But even then, no one really wants to learn, like, a, yet another GURPS. Here, here are 800 pages of tables to memorize, and this is how you play the game. So I try to keep reasonably easy stuff that's very easy to explain, but still allows that sort of logical outflow of a narrative. Can you name some of the blacklisted systems? Hmm. I, like, I don't think there's anything I've actually blacklisted explicitly. I'm generally the one who chooses, so it's me more or less like picking and choosing. But hmm, I don't think I like. I don't think I'd ever really run a Dungeons and Dragons game. 
I'm not a real big fan of any of those sort of D20 systems. Um, probably not White Wolf for similar reasons, but also I'm not a fan of really a lot of the White Wolf like fluff and like mechanics surrounding it and some of the implications in their rules and GURPS because just no. I'm sorry, GURPS fans. No. Going back to the podcasts and other GMs you mentioned earlier, if you were to have them at your gaming table, what game would you want to run them through? Oh, um... I really do try to tailor everything to my players. Like I said, Burning Wheel has always been the game like in my heart that's my favorite, so I think I'd probably want to run a Burning Wheel game. Or maybe like Mouse Guard, Torchbearer, one of the Burning Wheel-like derivatives. What is it about Burning Wheel as a system that helps you as a GM? Uh, I don't... It's really hard to explain. I think it just clicks with me. It's got... In some ways, it's got that same sort of rules-heavy craftiness that D&D does, but I think it does it in a much more believable, organic way. So that you're not kind of working around the video gaminess of like the systems to play the game. You're acknowledging the systems for what they are mechanically and how they fit within your narrative structure, which generally tends to be pretty well, at least in my experience and my opinion. And I, and I don't think Burning Wheel works for every group of players or every DM or every campaign, because there are definitely things that it's more suited to. But in those things, I personally think it excels. Can you tell us a bit about the setting and the characters that you are GMing for currently in The Wheel in the Way? Sure. Um, we're doing, our campaign right now is titled uh, The Streets of New Morceau. Um, New Morceau is a is a southern New Orleans analog, dripping with the supernatural. Lots of uh, vampires, werewolves, things like that. About a year and change ago, there was some heretofore unknown supernatural attack that killed a lot of people and destroyed the city's uh, entrenched power structures. And so our game is sort of picking up after that, and then sort of like looking at what else might happen. As for our players, rather the characters, we've got Tulula, who is a Native American girl, a Choctaw, who is uh, basically a slayer, a la Buffy, the vampire slayer, uh, who is more or less trained only to murder. So she's like getting into society and having a lot of trouble with it. We have Chantel Leneau, who is a junior librarian who doesn't really have any powers and is just along for the ride and weighing over her head. We have Dale, who doesn't have a last name. He's a, he's a hillbilly Melungeon who is a moonshine wizard taught by his pappy. He's also kind of like in over his head. He doesn't want to do any of this, but he likes his new friends and kind of wants to protect them. And uh, Yuki no Mimi, who is a kitsune who got banished from her mother's kingdom for eating some rather important people and really just wants to have fun. Do you prefer that the players build their characters together or does it not make a difference? Generally, I like to have them start the foundations alone and that doesn't and it varies. Sometimes it's alone, sometimes it's together. 
and then as they build the characters further to sort of build those uh, a priori interactions, if there are any, and then let sort of the narrative handle the bulk of that, because it, it really doesn't make sense in most in most scenarios for the player characters to have absolutely no interactions beforehand. So I like to have at least a little bit of that connection. Is new more so a homebrew setting, or is it part of a larger setting? Um, it's homebrewed. Uh, we actually play we actually play the game of the Quiet Year to do a lot of um, fleshing out of new more so to sort of figure a lot of things out. Um, and it's and the reason I didn't want to go with like New Orleans is because you know New Orleans is New Orleans, and I'm a really big fan of you know draw maps leave blank places and with a city created from whole cloth in the in the image of new orleans we can do that we can put things in as necessary using the quiet year as a basis for new more so do you prefer that your players have a hand in crafting the world that they're going to be playing in generally it, it gets them a lot more um engaged it gives them it gives them a voice in sort of shaping the universe that they're going to be playing in um occasionally there are certain things that i'll like largely shape just by fiat either because there's no real good mechanic to like take that but generally i'll still talk with them and we'll have lots of conversations about how this is going to be but games like kingdom stars without number the quiet year Microscope are all really good for like prepping a setting for the players, like with the players. When you are constructing a new NPC for the players to interact with, what is your primary focus for that new NPC? I try to make sure that their voice, they're not just, you know, like their voice, voice, but like how they speak, their intonation, what they want, like the level of respect they give the player characters. I try to keep that consistent. I want them to, even if even if the notes I have on them are nothing more than like Tommy, he makes a real good martini. I want them to remember Tommy. I want I want Tommy to seem like someone who is a fleshed fleshed out character. Do you have a favorite NPC? Oh, um, so in season one, our ranger, Karig, ended up making friends with a mouse, uh, and I really did super love playing her. Her name was Emile, and she was just this, like, this bright, squeaky little thing who loved food! And she was a blast to play, and she, she was also really good for lightening up scenes that were a little dark. And how about an NPC that... You had intended to just fill in a side role that took main stage. Duggan, actually, also from season one, uh, he was just supposed to be kind of a faceless caravan driver, a wagon driver in the caravan, and he ended up becoming like a central NPC, and like everyone loved him. How did his story conclude? Uh, it hasn't yet. Like I said, one of my players from season one ended up having to take a break for academic reasons, so we kind of left left that setting on a cliffhanger, and uh, so we don't we don't know what happened to Duggan and his husband until the next episode of Dragon Ball Z, anyway. How about an NPC that was meant to take the main stage and got shoved into the wings? Oh Lord, 
that happens a uh, <clears throat> So Doc in, in New More So was an, was an NPC who got introduced in the second or third episode, I think. The second or third session. And he was a guy I, I planned to be like, you know, he had like a lot of exposition. He had a lot of secrets and narratives. And like, he wasn't even going to show up for a bit. And then the players ended up like, Fighting and killing him inside of inside of twenty five minutes in episode two. Was there any temptation to Deus Ex Machina a way out for that NPC? Nah, that would cheapen the player's achievements. I feel like I can other NPCs could deliver that exposition, or the fact that ex- that exposition was possessed by Doc and is now lost. Is it, it's its own kind of like dramatic irony that is a really good thing, I think. Knowing that, hey, Doc was the one who knew this and we fucking offed him. And that's a thing that the players and the characters have to deal with. And I think that that's more interesting than, oh no, he had, um, he had contingency teleport, actually. Is the party normally the quick to kill type? Some of them are and some of them aren't. Um, the players, my players are all, like, amazing at, like, keeping in character, and some of them can get a little fighty if, if they're, if they're pushed into it. In the current season, that's Tallulah especially. She's a little on the short side, and she's a, and she's a woman, but she's also one of the best fighters in the city. Um, if not the world, so sort of the constant disrespect she gets really grates on her. And she ends up in a lot of fist fights because of it. Have you tried to incentivize them to not kill someone right away, or is this just character work? That I mean, there's very much an incentivization to not do it, but there's no like disincentivization to do it, if that makes sense. Um, murdering people is, I feel like, it, it tends to make things go poorly if if they do it that way, but like at the same time, it's completely keeping in character. And the things that come off of it are, I think, really interesting. Do you do anything before or during your sessions to help get the players into their character? Before, just a little bit of banter, nothing really. Um, but after, I do like to like try and you know call out my players and say, "Hey, this was a this was a really good thing you did. I liked how you did this. This was very in character. This moment was great." I try to, like, positively reinforce that, both to, like, help them sculpt those characters and just to make them feel better, because every a lot of people have a lot more insecurity than I think they're willing to let on, and just being told, hey, you did a good job, is, I think, really good for your players. When is the last time you GM'd for a new player, as in new to RPGs? Actually, I was the first GM for all of my current players, uh, except for one, as in any tabletop RPG. So, uh, I mean, I've had to introduce all of them, but uh, it's it's not hard to teach someone that kind of thing as long as you're as long as you're patient, you're concise, and you work with them rather than just assuming that they know things. Do you have any tips for GMs that are trying to get new players out of their shells? Engage them. If one or two players or are sort of dominating a scene, shift the focus 
to one of the people who are staying quiet. It's like, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing while this is going on? And try to put the spotlight on them for a moment, even if they're just doing sneaky stuff in the background. But that kind of giving them a platform can really help them like develop the confidence to do it on their own. And how about tips for a new GM? Be flexible, but not always. Learn when to keep your players on a loose leash and when to put them on a tight leash. Um, they can't always get what they want, and sometimes bad things will happen to them. Two things I would definitely say to like tamp down is players talking over other players, and players holding a resentment to other players for what their characters have done, or towards you for like the results of a thing. That doesn't have to be a, hey, stop this. That has to be a, hey, we should pause and have a conversation about this. Being in a group of writers while you're gaming, do you or them have trouble where you have constructed a narrative in your head, but then it goes awry and you feel like there's wasted potential? I mean, that happens to me at least fairly often, and I know it happens to some of the others. What I generally do is, if there's anything I can salvage from that, I salvage it, and if there's not, I write it off. That's sort of one of the like natural consequences of playing with this kind of open, uh, this open narrative. If I wanted to have you know like a binder that was the setting and this is exactly what will happen, I could do that. But I I, don't, I just I just don't think that's an interesting way to tell a story. Have you constructed a character that you would like to play in your own setting? A couple of them, uh, Norella. The halfling, um, the halfling lieutenant of the evil god Atesh from season one. And, uh, I really wouldn't mind playing Cantrice, the Bokor priestess from Numorcel. If you were to live in one of your settings, which would you want to live in? Oh, uh, they're both pretty awful. Um, uh, I guess Ankar is a little bit better. At least there's elves. <laughs> Neither of them are particularly good places. I'm not a very happy writer, unfortunately. When you started off role-playing, did you prefer making perfect characters? Um, in a, in a stat sense or in a story sense? Both. Yeah, kind of. Like, I think when I started, and I think it's like a pitfall a lot of people fall into, is I viewed it as a game to win rather than an experience to have. That's kind of something that I, I tried to get across in the podcast name in like a little way. Uh, the wheel and the way mean, it, it mean what it means to me is that it's not about winning or losing or whatever. It's about the path we're on and who we are as we take it. We're, you know, a wheel on a way. And I think that concentrating on getting the most gold or the highest levels or being able to do like 357 d6 damage at 500 feet range in one round takes away from that when do you think you moved away from that and more towards exploring flawed characters it was honestly as I started getting introduced to other systems uh, I went to a few cons in the, in the uh, early aughts and I played with like some game designers and some more experienced people, and I started getting a sense of what they were doing. And it was less of that very video gamey 
go here, kill this, get that, and more of a, there's a story here to tell. You have goals, and your character has goals, and that's the point, not getting the high score. When you're writing for The Wheel and the Way, do you have an ending in mind for your settings? Sometimes. Generally, the endings that I have in mind ahead of time are bad endings, like if the players really bungle things up catastrophically. And generally, this is like after the entire party gets themselves killed or corrupted or whatever. This is probably like, this is, yeah, this is about what I'm going to narrate after you're all dead. Otherwise, sometimes I do like to think of what the PCs might want for themselves after. Like, are they going to settle down in a house with a white picket fence in a suburb? Are they going to go out and wrestle alligators? What do they want? And how do I present them the options that they can make to go after that? Are you more interested in telling big stories that span continents or small stories that stay in one place. They're both really good, and I think that any big story should be made up of a lot of small ones. And that everyone you meet has a story, and that everything you do is a story. So even if you're going from city to city, across a continent, across a world, across a universe, there should still be those small stories. There should still be those, those petty dramas and those and those little tales to tell. Do you have any decisions as a GM that, looking back on, you regret or wish you had administrated differently? Yeah, in season one, I made our paladin, Savon, fall. And I don't think that was the wrong decision, but I think sort of my... Uh, depiction of the events leading up to it could have been better to have allowed their player to make a more informed decision because I feel like they were kind of blindsided by it. Do you think that a GM should go back and reverse a decision at a later time? Or do you think that once something has happened in the game that it should stay as is? It depends on the time. One thing that I really liked from uh, Urban Shadows that I'm probably going to take forward into everything that I GM at this point um, is the X card. It's a thing by John Stravopoulos that basically gives all the players and the GM narrative veto, basically saying, hey, this, this, is, this is not something that I'm comfortable having in this narrative in this game. Could we you know, rewind 10 seconds and change it to something else? And I'm a big fan of that because all your players should be comfortable. It's not that you know, they shouldn't be able to push their boundaries or you you know, you shouldn't try to get them to do that, but there are definitely things for different people that are off-limits. But I feel like once the damage has been done, you know, a session or two or ten later, trying to rewind those can just be messy and confusing. If it really needs to be done, then do it, but otherwise, I would just say try to patch it up. What's the last thing that was X-carded during one of your sessions? There was a vampire, a lesbian vampire, who uh, who preyed on basically uh, gay homeless women who were kicked out because they were gay, um, and that was the thing that got excarded out. And it's it it, it it is like a a very cool but horrific thing that does play into a lot of you know really common tropes about lesbians and predatory like sexuality and things like that. And I totally understand why that player excarded it.
Have there been elements that you have left out because you thought they might get X-carded? Or do you always present them to the players to make the choice? I know my players pretty well, so I will often talk to them one-on-one beforehand and just sort of vaguely describe this thing to them and see if they're like if a, if I think a player might have a problem with it, I'll I'll run it by them beforehand. But aside from that, I just write as is, and if someone wants to X card something, then that's fine. With the X card, do you have people use it in someone else's name because they fear that they are uncomfortable? Um, I haven't had that happen. If that were to happen, I think that we would just have to pause and have a discussion. I don't believe that there's a way to use it, like, frivolously. Like, if someone is bothering to X-card something, then I think it bothers them that much that they that it's, you know, correct to take it out. But if someone was going to do it for someone else, then I think we would have, like, a real quick, like, three-way discussion. Like, hey, should this be cut? Like, and it's, uh, do you want it cut because you think they want it cut? Or do you want it cut because you want it cut, but, like, don't want to sort of admit that? Either one of those is fine. But um, I feel like the X card is like both useful as a tool and like as a framing device for conversations with your players about boundaries and about you know comfort, which I think I think all GMs should really have at least on a casual level. After a session, do you set aside time to decompress and move away from the characters? Yeah, a little bit. Like I said, I like to sort of. Give the players like little, you know, hey, good jobs, um, and we, we sometimes we talk for a bit. Generally, we have some of us have to go to the bathroom. We'll chit chat on text afterwards. But uh, I think I think all of us kind of like to decompress in our own way. Um, I like to just sort of sit down and read some stuff for a bit. And I know uh, Rose, one of our players, um, is like solicited music. I think, and some people just like talking. So I, I think it's kind of a we split up after that. How long do your recording sessions usually last? Um, anywhere between 90 and 120 minutes is the average, with a break or two in the middle. Do you find that that time is best for an episode, or best for you as a GM? Uh, it's kind of both. Episodes that are longer than that tend to be kind of unwieldy, and like a lot of people, at that amount of time, they start like spacing out, losing attention, and it becomes like just hard to keep them involved. So even with breaks, I feel like once you get to about 90 minutes to two hours, you should probably start looking for a way to wrap up. What's the longest session you have GM'd? Well, one of my players and I played um, The Deep Forest, which is uh, very similar to The Quiet Ear. It's by the same author. And uh, it's a GMless game, but I was f- facilitating it, and uh, that lasted about four and a half hours, which was way more than I expected. But uh, besides that, um, there was probably a Burning Wheel game that I did with some friends. Uh, we were basically staying up very late with lots of libations and such, and we probably played for three or four hours total. Do you have a favorite memory, either as a GM or player? Now, I think that my favorite memory will always just be, like, the last cool thing that happened. The last, like, big cool thing that I really liked. Like, uh, right now I'm playing in a, in a Firebrand's Mobile Frame Zero game with some friends. And uh, my character came back from the dead as, like, a cyborg zombie super soldier. 
and confronted her murderer and was like very upset and they had this conversation and she just like crushed a wine glass in a robot hand and that was like really dramatic and cool and i loved it but if you asked me in two months i'd probably have a new answer going back to the podcasters and gms you had mentioned earlier if you could have one of them as your gm who would it be austin walker i'm such a big fangirl like (laughs) i would just i would just die and what system? Oh, whatever he wanted to run. Like, like him doing that was like a bit one of the big like, like me getting really into friends at the table was a really big impetus for me to like draw these friends in to play this game. It like kind of reignited a spark that had gone dormant in a lot of ways. As like, God, I really want to run a game. I want to play a game. I want to do something. And so I grabbed these players and started this and started this podcast. So and it just. Like his his writing abilities, his narrative, everything is just it astounds me all the time. And like he's kind of like the GM slash podcast host that I also really look up to a lot. And if you could pick one of his players to add to your table, who would it be? Oh, that's tough too. Um It would probably be either Ali Akampura or Janine Hawkins. Um, they're both really, I, I feel like, fun people, very, like, snarky, I think they fit in. They're always really good with their characters, they have a good, you know, head on their shoulder, and they try to keep in character in a really fun way. And not to say that the rest of the players don't, they're just kind of my personal favorites. With Austin Walker's podcasting getting you reinvigorated, have any of your players started looking into GMing? Yeah, actually, Victoria, um, one of my players, has GM'd a couple of games with her friends, and she said it was very fun, uh, but exhausting. And some of our listeners have actually told us that they had a lot of fun listening to us, so they kind of started playing in their own games again. And that's always good to hear that you can inspire that sort of thing in someone else. Would one of your players take over GMing for a session of the podcast? We've talked about it and actually one of them victoria again has for um for for our little we have little uh short side episodes for when we have like scheduling conflicts and there's just no way to get everyone together so we just need like filler for a week uh victoria will do our little uh a little uh, side one shot and those have worked pretty well do you think that has your GMing affected how you play? Probably. It definitely, I think, has caused me to look a lot more at like the narrative and like drive the, the, the drive of my characters, the underpinnings that like make them them and sort of what they want to do and why. It makes me a lot more likely to question those motives and poke at them. If the opportunity presented itself and the means were available, would you want to do a live game in front of an audience? Ooh, I have really bad social anxiety, and I I don't work well in front of live audiences, so I'd have to pass on that. What about in a situation like streaming on Twitch? Oh, yeah, we could do that. It's, uh... It's not that's not really any different than podcasting. I've I've streamed a few video games to, you know, between 
between zero and like a hundred players. Uh, it's not really like my thing. I'm not great at it, but that sort of layer of abstraction really helps. If you could have one thing from the settings you've GM'd in, what would it be? Probably the ability to reshape reality, like a god. I mean, I guess that's kind of the fake answer. But, uh, yeah, magic powers would just be great. I would, I would love to be a wizard. Any certain school of wizardry? Probably conjuration. Uh, conjuration or evocation. And what kind of robes? I think probably, like, green silk with, like, a high, like, ankle cut so they're not dragging in the mud all the time. Uh, pretty snug, relatively well embossed. You know, they're good-looking robes. You can, you can look at me and say, that is, she is a good-looking wizard, but she'll also kick my ass. That, that, I want that kind of robe. Do you go with the classic wide-brimmed hat? Uh, I think probably something a little bit smaller and daintier, something a little bit more, um, a little bit more functional, a little more practical, maybe maybe a beret. And do you have a staff, orb, or grimoire? Probably, probably a scepter and a grimoire. If you were to run a game based on Disney's Gargoyles, what system would you want to run it in? That's a really good question, and I don't know. Um, hmm. Like, some things spring to mind, but I'm not sure that they work. Stuff like, uh, hmm. <sighs> the problem is that all the characters are playing... I think that, honestly, a burning wheel derivative might be the best to do. Some, uh, like, it, like, not a burning wheel derivative, but a mouse guard derivative, which is a burning wheel derivative. But, like, take mouse guard and sort of edit that around? Because, yeah, because gargoyles have, like, clans and, like, all sorts of, like, dumb lore story that, like, doesn't really make a lot of sense, honestly. And, like... <sighs> so I feel like mouse guard... We are going to start wrapping things up, but before sure. we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the PIVO questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. Sure. What is your favorite word? Unctuous. Do you get to use it often? Not really. What is your least favorite word? Ointment. Do you get to use it often? Luckily, no. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I, I like, I'm always, I've always been a big fan of, like, romance stories, but with girls. You know, the big, the, you know, the, the sort of the classic epics, like Gilgamesh, but lesbians. And, like, so stuff like Xena, and that's always been just, like, this absolute hell yes and it just gets me so invested and like it's the, it's just the kind of character that i love and it gets me so pumped to be able to write them what turns you off when really strong women have to play backseat to like imbecile dudes and then end up dating them what is your favorite curse word to hear from your players 
that sort of slow, drawn-out fuck or shit, like when they just realize what's what's happened to them. What's the last thing you did that got that reaction? Let's see. Uh oh, yeah. The one of the people they were fighting dropped a dropped a like four hundred pound weighted belt off the side of a wrestling ring, and and Rock lead the hell out of them. What sound or noise do you love? Rain. What sound or noise do you hate? Fingernails on paper. What game system would you like to attempt? Hmm. Burning Wheel, I think. Like, I don't think I've ever gotten, like, a really good long-term, like, s- like campaign of Burning Wheel with, with solid players. And I'd really like that to happen. What game system would you not like to attempt? Um, Exalted. What about it? It's just, it's not my thing. It, it's it's very, like, it's too much. And, like, I get it, and, like, I get the draw, but it's just, like, it's totally not my thing. It's too, like, it's too rules lawyery. It's very, oh, I shoot you. No, I have, I'm bulletproof. No, I have super double bullets that penetrate bulletproof skin. And... It's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much for me. It's not a thing I want to play or do. Have you tried watching any actual plays of it? Or is it just something that you bounced off early and haven't cared to come back to since? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've played a bit of it with people, like, ages ago, and it was just absolutely not something I enjoyed. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad system, but just, like, how I interacted with it, how, like... What I came away from it with is, this is a good system that's not for me. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? I don't know, like, thanks, or that was really cool, or just sort of, you know, like, appreciation, or like, acknowledgement that they're having fun. Because that's that's my goal, is to keep my players having fun. And finally... If you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Can I interfere at all? Nope, you just get to watch him sneeze. Oh, this would be a lot easier if I had a sneezing fetish. Uh, oh, Sapphos of Lesbos. Is there anywhere the insiders can learn more about you? Um, sure. You can find me on Twitter at Saraiguma, S-A-R-A-I-G-U-M-A. You can find our podcast at Wheeland Way on Twitter and Tumblr, and myself at Excuse Me, That's Not Canon, all one word on Tumblr. You can check any of those out, and I would love it if you'd listen to our podcast. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. No problem. It was a pleasure to be here. You can follow this show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. You can also send mail to us at InsideTheMastersStudio at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send us a message on Twitter or through email. Inside the Master's Studio is an Audio Entropy original. You can head over to audioentropy.com for more original podcasts. Debuting just yesterday was Skies of Academia. Skies of Academia is a show about video games, their systems, their stories, and their influence. 
Join Dustin and his panel of guest hosts as they explore a different subject each week, blending critical analysis with lighthearted humor. They launched with three episodes yesterday, the first official episode being about avatars. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you gave yourself three hours to tell a story, and it only took one, don't force yourself and your players to fill the other two hours. Go back and talk about what you liked, what you didn't like, and plan for the next session. You're a storyteller, not a time filler. Hey, Philly people! Jeff Stormer here from the Party of One podcast, the RPG actual play podcast focused on two-player role-playing games. You might remember it from the time that we played a game with Matt from Teenagers with Attitude, or Molly from Totally Reprise, or Mitchell from All Along the Watchtower, or Moon Rules from Inside the Master Studio. We played a lot of games. That's not really the point. Anyway, moving on, here's the deal. Party of One is doing a live show, July 15th, at Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at high noon, as part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. It's going to be great. We're playing a superhero-themed game. It's going to be so much fun. And if you're in the area, I would love it if you could make it out. And if you're not in the area, or you can't make it out, you should check out the show on SoundCloud and listen to the live episode when it drops. Either way, thank you for your time, and party on.